Welcome to Hot Almighty, where we talk about the American harvest. This is the podcast about North and Southeastern American Indian foodways. What y'all cooking? I'm your co-host, Aja. And I'm your co-host, Damon. And today we have a special guest, y'all. It is Alvin Colon. He is a gardener and, of course, representing Chicago again. So I'm excited about that. Shotown. <laughs> Introduce yourself to the audience, Alvin, please, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm uh, a gardener, uh, and I've been gardening for some years now at the National Museum of Puerto Rican Arts and Culture. Uh, trying to work greatly to, uh, you know, pretty things up over there. Uh, at the same time, kind of preserve our cultural heritage as far as body goes. Um, I'm uh, also a full-time physics teacher. Uh, and I uh, do a lot of work also with my students uh, relating to urban agriculture. So Alvin, first of all, I'm very excited for you to be here because I'm a gardener as well. And when you were explaining your garden and how you incorporate Taino culture and you help the people in the neighborhood understand, you know, the plants that you're growing and you even grow Mesoamerican plants to connect with the um, other people in the community, the Mexican people in the community. I was really excited about um, having you on the show. So, but can you answer what is one thing you want the world to know about Taino people and culture? I think the biggest thing is that the Taino are not dead. <laughs> They're still us. <laughs> um, still alive and well. Uh, you know, there's, there's really no talking about pure Taino these days. Uh, but most of us from the Caribbean, and that's not just Puerto Rico. Again, it is most of the Caribbean, uh, as well as a good portion of Florida, um, have some Taino ancestry. So when you say that you're still here, right? Yeah. What What's being done to make it seem that you're not here? What's being done to, to make it seem that way? Now, I'm going to say that from my perspective as a New Yorker, right? So as a New Yorker, and I grew up um, in Harlem. I went to school in East Harlem and, you know, around a lot more Puerto Ricans and people who were very proud of their Taino heritage. They would, they, they would proclaim it and talk about it. But, you know, just from your view, how do you feel like, you know, you're, you're being erased or, you know, you're being yeah. made to. A lot of it is, a lot of it is the, uh, I guess the general attempt at cultural genocide. Um, and so, yeah, there would have been a good deal of that from say Imperial Spain. But when you're talking about Puerto Rico, you are talking about a place that has been a colony longer than any other place in the world. Because Puerto Rico passes from Imperial Spain to the American Empire, to territory of the United States. And uh, I think in both instances, you get a significant deal of kill the Indians, save the man. You know, there was a lot of that approach. And, uh, you know, even today, uh, it, it, it's difficult dealing with uh, the outsized influence of American media, uh, the outsized influence of uh, just just the promises of money and wealth 
that are supposed to be the American dream, right? And people buying into that. <laughs> and, you know, essentially you get a lot of brown people uh, thinking along the lines of, well, if we could just stop being brown, we'd be fine. <laughs> uh, but of course, you know, that, that, that doesn't come with the assimilation option is not genuinely there for most of us. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's a long, hard road to just, you know, keep in touch with the ways of your ancestors, whether those ancestors are Taino or West African or European, chiefly Iberian, Spanish, and Portuguese. You got any, you got a follow up before I go into the next question? No, I'm here for the ride. <laughs> All right, next question then. Um, how how does Taino culture inform your gardening practices and crop selection? Well, the first thing I, I have to state the obvious here: uh, Chicago is not Puerto Rico, <laughs> um, not by a long shot. And yeah, uh, so it is it is difficult uh, to capture the magnificence and splendor of a place that is referred to as a tropical paradise here in Chicago. Uh, but one of the things I let guide me early on when I started working with the museum uh, is the native name for Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is a Spanish name that simply means rich port. And there was this funny little inversion at some point in history where the capital and the main island of Puerto Rico, because Puerto Rico is actually several islands, uh, the main island of Puerto Rico um, and the capital kind of flip-flopped names. And so the country became Puerto Rico and the capital became San Juan. San Juan means St. John. In this case, it is St. John the Baptist, La Isla de San Juan Bautista. So that got flip-flopped. Um, but the original Taino name is Boriquen. Boricua. <laughs> and this is where we get Boricua from, right? And this is where we get the slightly Spanish corrupted, I don't know, that N just keeps creeping up sometimes to finish the syllable, Borinquen. Um, that name, I'm gonna first out say, it is not a humble name. <laughs> <laughs> we may be known as a people of great hospitality and humility, but not when it came to naming our homeland, right? So Boriquen basically translate, translates as place of the most high Lord, dwelling place of the most high Lord of the most high God, perhaps. And so in essence, it is being named heaven itself. And, uh, you know, the, the, the subsequent waves of people that came in largely agreed with, wow, this really is a special place. And uh, this is where you get among the Spanish, uh, lots of comparisons to the idea of Eden. Okay. That garden that God himself planted and put Adam and Eve in. And so because of that name, I determined to try to create this garden to the entrance that would be worthy of that name and so i said okay if this if this is supposed to be heaven pretty much let me go with cloud-like forms for the blooms 
and so I don't have single blooms. It's not nothing here. Nothing I've planted is a great cut flower. Mm -hmm. um, but it all just looks like these pillows of different colors, as if you could walk up into heaven during perhaps a sunrise or a sunset. Um, that is supposed to be the idea of, of that front entrance garden. But there's one more little thing I decided to do, uh, and that is capture the splendor of Puerto Rico's national flower, which is known as Maga. Uh, the Maga flower uh, is sometimes referred to as a hibiscus. Uh, it is technically not a hibiscus, but it looks a lot like it. So, you know, people could be forgiven for mistaking it for a hibiscus. And so I decided to plant uh, a hardy hibiscus with very large blooms um, in roughly the same color as a sort of way of mimicking that, that vision of Puerto Rico in the tropics. And I have seen this uh, elsewhere. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very well-liked uh, plant, and you very commonly see it featured. Uh, the National Museum of Puerto Rican Arts and Culture, of course, features a lot of artwork uh, by Puerto Rican artists. It's commonly featured uh, in paintings by Puerto Rican artists, especially when they're trying to capture the appearance of the Puerto Rican countryside. And when I even imagine that, I have to make my way down there to see this magnificent garden before the season ends because I'm in the area as well. But just imagining that, that has to be something that is spectacular to the eye in the middle of Chicago, which is a temperate climate. So it, I'm excited. Glorious, attracts pollinators. Uh, just this past year, I feel like I was blessed by seeing a hummingbird visit hummingbirds are rather rare in chicago um i've been living in chicago my whole life i'm almost 40 years old last year uh, i had for the first time seen a hummingbird within city limits and then this year i actually saw a hummingbird visit my garden and so that was for me that's the payoff that's that's the full extent of it like that's what i need that, that's my reward, right? <laughs> for for doing all this work, taking care of this garden and planting it. I definitely resonate with that. I absolutely resonate with that. A little bit earlier, you stated that you want the world to know that Taino culture and the people are not dead, that you are still here. Why do you think it's important to stop only speaking about indigenous cultures as if they're notions of the past, but to also, also speak of them in the present tense as well as future? I think in large part, especially for people who are multiracial, uh, you want to be a whole person and you should be acknowledging your entire heritage. And you should be realizing that you're a continuation of all of that. And uh, as a teacher, and as a teacher of kids who are majority Latino, uh, it's a little painful at times, you know, talking with these kids and realizing that uh, their other teachers, their teachers before have largely failed them in this regard and let them come up thinking things like there is such a thing as 
pure Puerto Rican or pure Mexican, you know, and you'll ask them, well, what am I? Or what are you? And they'll be like, oh, I'm just, I'm just Puerto Rican. I'm just Mexican. And I was like, mm, yeah, but you know, that's a mix, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in so many ways it is, we're kind of, we're so, I, I feel like in many ways we're a vision of the future that is to come, right? So as America, you know, goes on, of course, there's going to be more mixing. There's going to be more people of mixed heritage. And, you know, they might think that this is something new, but it's like, I don't know, we've, we've been around a very long time. <laughs> and yes, uh, a big part of that mix is also indigenous. I agree. Can I ask this question? Um, because I think when we talked about the erasure part earlier and even into what we're talking about now, which is people taking, you know, their, you know, country of origin, I guess, um, as their identity. Another problem would definitely be colorism. So you used the term earlier and, you know, my audience, I'd be remiss if I didn't address when you use the term brown, which I don't necessarily have a problem with anybody mm -hmm. identifying with any term. But what I tend to wonder is how, how have those color terms been, um, how have they aided and embedded in the erasure of indigenous? Because like the term brown is used as opposed to black for another group of people. But it's like, if you look at the people that they call black, those people actually are brown, <laughs> right? They have brown complexion. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, it's, so it's, it's just a, a crazy divide and conquer game and tactic, you know, from my view. Um, I, I, you know, I don't want to speak for Aja, but, you know, we, we talk about similar things. So I just, again, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask that question. Um, how do you feel that that plays a role as well? I feel like this will be another three episodes of a podcast if we really want to delve into it. Uh, so, you know, you could, you could do you could do a whole series on this one. Uh, but as far as the erasure, um, I think uh, I don't think it's necessarily done through um, color uh, acknowledging of color or or the label specific fixed um i think um there's definitely a colorism uh throughout latin america um and i think we're still willing to acknowledge um african ancestry and you know we'll throw in the term afro afro cuban afro boricua for instance um these will come up um now um, I think in many ways that's an excessive focus on phenotype, uh, on okay. people's outward appearance. Um, so, you know, if, if we take myself as an example, I'm passing. Um, most people even think that I might be Latino. Um, okay. they see a long guy. Um, I've light skinned, I've light colored eyes, which typically are green kind of color changing um and uh they, they they don't see anything other than a white guy here and you know in all fairness 
European is the majority of my ancestry. Mm-hmm. Followed by Taino. Um, and, you know, for me, a person like me, um, the social interaction uh, can be a little bit strange, um, subject sometimes to microaggressions from your own group <laughs> or from other Latinos. Um, you know, I get things like, oh, you speak Spanish really well for a Puerto Rican when finally they find out that I'm Puerto Rican. But, you know, a moment prior, they might have been guessing, oh, are you Colombian? Are you Cuban? Or a Spaniard? Are you Argentine? You know, and and so there's that in-group or uh, near-group um, sort of, uh, what do I call this? Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, th- th- there's a little bit of picking on each other. Let's just say that. Um and, uh, you know, then there's the once in a while uh, expectation that, you know, saying racist things around me is okay. <laughs> They're like, oh, don't worry. <laughs> We're in good company right now. This is just, a, you know, another white person. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I'm not cool with what you're saying. <laughs> and, you know, in my case, it's it's also a realization that it is this whole mix of genes and you get what you get right and my father doesn't pass for white his father before him wouldn't pass for white my grandfather on the other side maybe for a while but then as he got older he looked much more indigenous but he still had blue eyes (laughs) so it's just it's just this luck of a draw you know you just get what you get and what you get doesn't negate anybody in your family tree i agree i think how you meant the phenotype the focus that tends to go into phenotype um has become a big detriment i even go to tell people that like at the term white you know it 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 empowers people within the black white paradigm but as far as um, in as far cases. as you, oh say that again I'm sorry I didn't want to say that again it, it, it's a false dichotomy in many in many cases and then yeah it negates that there are there's full color there there's more than just black and white that that definitely and also it also denationalizes people within that paradigm you get what I'm saying people have yeah. they they have places of origin you know they have tribal affiliations. You know, um, I was having a conversation with somebody about the Irish people that they, you know, descend from Gaelic people, right? What happened to mm-hmm. those people? You understand? Those people right. now, you know, there was a time Irish people weren't even considered white, right? So all right. of this ne- term- Nino politics, yeah. Develop people into a system that overall, I believe, you know, lends to the erasure. You know what I'm saying? That's that's why, you know, I, I, I kind of led that way. And yeah. I just wanted to come on that, you know what I mean? If you want, if you want to say something before I go to the question, um, feel free. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it very much is, uh, you know, this process by which ethnicity was erased uh, for the black American, especially, um, you know, that process of being traded around uh, as, as if just livestock, right? Um, 
that was all very much meant to erase culture and history and any sense of actually belonging to a tribe. For the white American, there's this assimilation process whereby if they buy in, if they totally disregard any culture that they had, they can be white. You know, Europe's not full of white people. It's, it's full of light-skinned people <laughs> with features that you would consider white. But Europe is full of Europeans. <laughs> it's only here in the Americas. It was only in that process in our history here that they became white. You know, Alvin... To follow up with that, I am wondering, as someone who does have Taino um, heritage, how you feel on an ancestral, a deep level, if somebody um, just simply refers to you as white? Uh, well, for me, um, on an ancestral level, when it comes to Taino, uh, Taino is, was, was more widespread than just Puerto Rico. And so for me, some of this actually lends itself to um, my, my solidarity with the rest of the Caribbean, with the rest of Latin America, because we're widespread, we're dispersed, you know. Uh, one example that I can give you is that in international competitions, of course, we have Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Cuba, a very outsized representation in international sports, for instance. Um, and let's say Puerto Rico doesn't go all the way. I'm still willing to root for the Dominicans and the Cubans. <laughs> I'm like, go all the way. You guys are basically us. You know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're separated by miles. But we're not really separate in culture. Um, put another way, I quite often refer to, especially Cuba, Dominican Republic, and Puerto Rico as three sisters who borrow each other's clothes and do each other's makeup. If any one of them has something good, the other ones are going to jump in on that and make their own contributions as well. I can definitely relate to that as a Tata Creek woman. I definitely want um, Damon to win as a Tuscarora man. <laughs> you know? I definitely see the camaraderie in all of us. So I appreciate you putting in that perspective. And I was going to say that kind of goes right to the next question, though, which is why do you think it's important to forge, forge relationships between indigenous people of the Americas beyond the waters and the borders. Yeah. Um, and, and so there, again, forging those relationships makes us all stronger. Um, you may only have your few million from your own particular island, uh, but added to, you know, the people elsewhere, that's that's a whole lot more. They're, they're strengthening that unity. And... Uh, you know, I have a very interesting take from this one graphic novel, comic book anthology. Um, and uh, I've been looking for a time for something that is, I guess, the 
Latino equivalent of Afrofuturism. Uh, like, where are we in the future? How is it that, you know, so much of the sci-fi just erases even the possibility that we exist, you know? Um, and I came across this story where finally there is a Caribbean space program. And the astronaut there was representing not Puerto Rico, not the Dominican Republic, not Cuba, but Antigua. Okay. Um, and so the whole group of islands um, in the Caribbean. And, and so, you know, in that moment, I felt this uh, very interesting um, hope for the future. And that really is going to come from unity. That really is going to come from working together instead of saying, oh, well, we've been conquered and divided. Uh, but instead, we should be, you know, saying, hey, we're all pretty much the same. <laughs> we are very we are much more alike than we are different. And if we join together, we could do so much more. So, Alvin, does it bother you that many of the plants that are indigenous to the Americas and are traditionally cultivated by Taino people have been attributed to other lands. For example, beans, peanuts, peppers, things that you've been growing forever, but they're attributed to other lands. Yeah, so I know there's this idea of centers of domestication and uh, those are best guesses. And mm -hmm. In many cases, it's probably true enough, but also you have to remember that the one superpower that human beings have is to walk and keep walking and keep walking and take themselves from one place to another and things from one place to another. Um, so there may have been a lot of things endemic to Puerto Rico, uh, let's say in uh pre-colonial times uh, but it's not even necessarily that they're native to Puerto Rico um, but these are things that had that Puerto Rico perhaps may have been enriched with um, through you know an elaborate trade network across the Americas um, that international trade existed and I think um if we re-examine that and look at that, we'll realize that more likely uh, many places were enriched by that instead of uh, the system we have now where, you know, clearly there are places getting a lot richer at the expense of others. So for me, it doesn't really bother me um, if others like the things that are perhaps more originally Taino, um, because in exchange also we've received so much. Um, you know, if you, if you think of Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico's national cocktail, uh, pina colada, originated in Puerto Rico. Um, pineapple was, has, has been in Puerto Rico for a very, very long, long time. It might just have come with the people who were passing through South America on their way to the Caribbean. So 
what you might consider proto-Taino. Um, and coconut is not originally from the Caribbean. <laughs> coconut was imported to Puerto Rico uh, very likely with the express purpose of being able to have an alternative to trade with, say, India or uh, other countries closer to India. And sugarcane, too, uh, was brought over from that area. Uh, but sugarcane is turned into rum. And that whole process, uh, I think as best as we we're told, really originates uh, with Middle Eastern people. Uh, that whole process of distilling alcohol and concentrating it. Uh, and, you know, when, when you put all that together, you get this wonderful thing that is the pina colada, of which just one of those things is originally what you could think of as a Puerto Rican plant. But, you know, I, I love to also say, while we may not have invented rum, I sure think we perfected it. Uh, and when it comes to coconut, coconut cream is a Puerto Rican invention. So while the coconut itself is not originally from Puerto Rico, the coconut cream is a Puerto Rican invention. Uh, so when you consider that this globalization of sorts leads to uh, more things, uh, a greater variety of things, uh, just richer life. I mean, I'm sure people can live their entire lives without trying a pina colada. But once you've tried it, you'll wonder where it's been all your life. <laughs> so I'm, I'm okay with, you know, the possibility that people don't recognize things as Taino. Um, just because, I mean, I also know that in that whole process, there are a lot of things that Puerto Ricans think of as always having been theirs that actually were brought relatively recently. I love that. And I love how you connected people through the food. Um, definitely. I appreciate that. Pardon me. So let me ask you this. Um, are you seeing a resurgence of Taino people embracing their culture and practices? And if so, um, what do you believe the spark is? Um, I think there is an interest. Um, it's the odds are against us, though. Um, it's hugely difficult. Um, one of the things you got to understand about that, the Taino people is that they were basically the first to encounter European imperialism. Uh, the waves of Spanish conquistadors that came in, uh, the diseases that swept through the population, um, the speed with with which the Taino population rapidly declined uh, makes it very difficult to know what Taino life was really like, what Taino culture was really like, what Taino thought was really like. Um, and I think people are, especially now with the rise of, say, like uh, DNA tests, and I myself have done Ancestry.com, uh, I don't know if you want to leave that in. Edit that part out. <laughs> no, you, 
I think the rumor that the Taino were utterly uh, destroyed, totally wiped out, um, had been pretty popular and, and spread around a considerable deal. Uh, now, you also have to take in consideration that I don't think anybody truly lives in a traditional pre-Columbian Taino way anymore. Um, but there are little bits of pieces of it here and there. Um, it is very likely that the Taino language um, loaned more words to Spanish than any other language of the Americas. Um, but that process of partly assimilation, partly what you call mestizaje in Spanish, that, that mixing of races kind of makes things a little bit difficult to know and some things are only just best guesses now uh, but I think there is more interest it's just unfortunately there's not a lot of great answers for those of us who would like to know so that was what I was um, wondering Alvin okay so here in the quote unquote mainland we can do um, genealogy so we can find records and we might find that, oh, even though our great-grandmother might have been living as a quote-unquote Negro or mulatto, she was actually this kind of American Indian because mm -hmm. of the records. And we can find books that may even list some of our ancestors. Um, do you have that ability when you're trying to do genealogy beyond the blood, the DNA test, the spit yeah. test? Do my, you have that ability to find records? My best understanding is that if you want to find records and if they are available, the best place to go is probably the church. Um, if the church has paperwork, that might be a way to go back. Um, I myself have not turned to these resources and not been able to track this stuff down for myself. I can probably go back just to uh, my great-grandparents' generation, and then I'm kind of stuck. Um, and I think the transition of power from one empire to another uh, kind of also causes things to stumble a little bit. Um, that process might find itself with a bit of a gap. Um you know, we're talking about a place that for about a generation, the people there had no nationality, as in they had no government that could say, OK, you really belong to us as a government. Um, in passing from the Spanish Empire and at the end of the Spanish-American War in 1898 uh, to the American Empire, it took the United States uh, almost 20 years uh, and, a, and a world war to decide to give Puerto Rican citizenship 
So there's this generation that gets caught in the middle, you know, having been born neither Spanish citizen nor American citizen. And so I, I think that kind of jumbles the record keeping a little bit. There's maybe a little less interest at that point uh, in a government that there's less interest by a government in keeping actual records. So the government side of things is a little bit sparse probably for that period. Uh, but if the marriage certificates, if the baptism certificates exist, uh, these can still be helpful. Okay. Uh, it's interesting because what you're talking about is something similar that happens here in, um, you know, you mentioned the DNA test and I, me, I haven't taken the DNA test um, at this time. Um, maybe in the near future, me, my uh, family, we have a family cemetery and, you know, we're doing a preservation project with that. Um, so we're looking to possibly do a DNA project and, you know, do some things as far as uh, cousin matches and jab match, things like that. Because, mm -hmm. you know, we see the value in that as opposed to, you know, those ethnicity estimates and those percentages, the pie chart and all of that. But with that being said, what I've seen them do on these Ancestry.com um, tests and others is that they identify, they selectively identify populations. So similar to what you're saying, you had certain people who were under, well, let's, let's say in flux between the British um, colonial structure and French colonial structure. Spanish tried to come in initially, like if you look at the Carolinas, the Spanish tried to come in and, you know, hold sway and they weren't able to. They had to, you know, start to move further out west. Um, so all of these, this ebb and flow would tend to, you know, um, show, get people confused when they're looking into researching their records. So they sometimes hit those same type of roadblocks. It might of course, be a, a different time period, but they're hitting uh, roadblocks as well. Not understanding that the governmental jurisdictions would play a big role. So, you know, just you touching on that, I think uh, was important uh, for our listeners to, you know, to take note of. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that repeats from time to time in history. It's like when there's a transition of power, often record keeping suffers. <laughs> Definitely. Well, it's always a connection through food. And Alvin, you told me about those the Taino squash. I ordered some squash seeds. And so that's connection right there. I do appreciate that. You will um, not regret it. It is one of the greatest things ever. <laughs> Alvin, <laughs> it it is a very delicious pumpkin. It really is. Oh, I'm excited. I'm a sucker for seeds. Um, speaking of which, what does food sovereignty mean to you? Uh, food sovereignty comes in on a number of fronts. First, there's, are you going to be able to find the variety of food that you are used to that you want? Um, if you are not in control of your food production, you may find one day that at the supermarket, um, what looks to be similar no longer is. No longer is quite the same. Um, 
there's a push in industrial agriculture to standardize and make things more the same. And that generally leads toward making things more bland. Uh, but uh, the question of food sovereignty, when it comes to Puerto Rico itself, it is very much the sovereignty question. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, uh, Puerto Rico finds itself very dependent on imported food. And that means whenever there's a tough time, uh, people generally have to go without. Uh, a hurricane will hit, and then there's nothing arriving at the ports because things are not in good shape for the moment, because there's always this delay. Uh, there is an imperial structure imposed on Puerto Rico, uh, and that is the U.S. Merchant Marine. And basically it means that anything into or out of Puerto Rico needs to be shipped through Jacksonville, Florida. Um, that introduces a delay because even if, say, our uh, brothers in the Dominican Republic wanted to help us out and wanted to sell us what we're asking for, um, they can't just send something from their island to ours, which is a, a very short distance. Um, food sovereignty uh, also means uh, not finding that all of a sudden some corporation has divested itself from your community. That suddenly you find that the nearby grocery store that you relied on has shut down and now you have to go a farther distance out of your community to get food. Um, and food sovereignty is also your ability to, uh, I guess, negotiate your relationship with the environment. Because if you're producing your own food, you can decide to make sure things are grown organically. You can uh, decide to make sure that things are being uh, produced in a way that actually improves the soil um, that also yields benefit for other species, not just you. Uh, so food sovereignty ties into a tremendous deal. Uh, and this is another one of those subjects I think you could probably do a whole series <laughs> of podcasts on. Um, but uh, suffice it to say um, that if you don't know how to grow your own food, um, you really are missing out on a great experience. And I think this is one of the things that people are waking up to now that, you know, we have been missing out that this is something to enjoy and, and not look at as just a bunch of hard work to be avoided. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. The hard work aspect, it is, you know, a labor, but it, it definitely should be a labor of love because, you know, it's the food that sustains, you know, a nation. And I think that's where a lot of people who, you know, they're looking for certain forms of, I guess independence, you know, let's let's use that word. They they won't 
be able to attain it until they can find a way to sustain themselves and you yeah. know growing own food is, is definitely the best way the supermarkets and the walmart culture that we got is that whole thing is eliminating you know that way of life so yeah we got to get back to it Go ahead, yeah, tremendously interconnected right there um i think for a lot of people it's easy to think of independence as a political status uh, it has to be far more than that. You have to be self-reliant, self-sustaining, because if you're not, then that independence is just a word. It's not a, it, it won't be a lived reality. I totally agree. I totally agree. Well, let's, let's end it right here. Um, so you invited us out to a Taino celebration. Okay. Maybe, it's, you know, at the museum, you guys having a celebration, you guys are laying out a spread for us. What type of food do we have? What's on the table? So if I'm going to try and keep it true uh, to a Taino meal, I'm thinking it looks very pescatarian. I'm thinking it also looks like it actually acknowledges the reality of life on an island that can be hit by a hurricane. And we go with the root vegetables. We use those as the staple crops. And so I think it should feature sweet potato, uh, cassava, AKA yuca. Uh, it should probably feature the freshest fish possible from the still not commercially fished waters of Puerto Rico. Um, something caught, you know, by a fisherman who really knows what he's doing and goes out there every day for a living. Nice. Uh, it might include a little bit of land crab uh, and uh, I'm thinking last but not least, because this, this this is one of the common laments for Latino families that there's great food, there's a great spread, but they forgot the avocado. It would include our Caribbean avocados, which you're maybe seeing in the store now referred to as Florida avocados. That's fine. They grow in Florida too. Uh, but the very large, smooth-skinned avocado with a really nice buttery flavor. Um, and, oh, let me not forget, uh, because we do have to spice things up a little bit. Uh, it's going to have to feature a natto, so achiote, and it's going to have to feature uh, the famous ají dulce and maybe an ajicito, just a little nice vinegar on the side, uh, well flavored, uh, ready to go for you know whoever wants to have a little more kick. Okay, I mean you had me pretty good at, at uh, sweet potato and, and yuca. You know what I'm saying? Those are two of my favorites. I, I definitely put some butter, put some butter on even one of those. You know what I'm saying? And we're ready to go. Uh, <laughs> what you call it? You didn't you didn't mention anything to drink. You know we gotta have some adult beverages there. You know what I'm okay. saying? I know. For me, my my favorite favorite, uh, what says Puerto Rico to me, is pacha juice. That is passion fruit juice, and uh, you know I grow this still in my gardens now. Uh, Maypop passion flower, you know the cold hardy cousins, the one that grows in Puerto Rico. Uh, definitely have to have that. Um, so refreshing, so relaxing. 
uh, and uh, just one more color to put on the palette. Uh, you know, one of the things we also like to do is try to eat all the colors. Okay. Right. That that is that is one of the uh, traditions. Much although, of course, with that anato, and it is delicious. A lot of things tend to tend to end up orange. <laughs> <laughs> you may look at a plate of Puerto Rican food and everything's orange. It's going to be that. <laughs> Man, that sounds delicious, Alvin. And, you know, there's the connection right there, the connection to food, indigenous people, because um, a lot of that food we can definitely relate to. Of course, like Damon said, sweet potatoes from the Americas, but that is something we definitely eat in the Southeast. It's not from the Southeast necessarily, but that's something we definitely eat in the Southeast. And, Man, and we already talked, Alvin. I love some passion fruit juice. That is like my favorite. And I really appreciate you being on the show. You've given us such great insight. You are the first person on the show to actually talk about Taino culture. And I really appreciate you taking time out to being on Hot Almighty. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I want to say the same. Um, You know, like I said, well, you mentioned the the passion fruit juice right there, that sounds delicious. I ain't gonna front, you know. Um, I'm I have to throw in maybe a little bit of Bacardi in there. They, you know, they don't sponsor us neither, that's, you know. That's fine. Heck. That's actually don't <laughs> don't cool off so let's give them a shout out at the <laughs> for the moment. Uh, Bacardi is interesting in that actually that's a family that moved from Cuba to Puerto Rico. Yeah. Uh, so uh, again, more of that idea of, you know, if you're Taino, it's not just Puerto Rico for you. Uh, it does have to be a more widespread, more throughout the Caribbean experience. You know, Alvin, I do have a, a clarifying question, although we do usually end the show with um, that last question. You've invited us over and you created this great meal. I do have to ask, so is it an automatic assumption that if somebody is from the Caribbean, that they have Taino ancestry. I uh, don't think it's automatic, um, but it is fairly widespread. Um, now you're going to have areas where maybe the Taino really did die off entirely. That's a possibility. Uh, you're also going to have other tribes in the mix. Uh, you might have people who are more properly referred to as Carib. That's why it is the Caribbean. Um, and you're also going to have the possibility of uh, people whose heritage is Timucua. Uh, and the Timucua are more associated with Florida than the rest of the Caribbean. Uh, but I'm aware of at least one population that moved down into Cuba. So, you know, people move back and forth. Um, and that's a possibility there. Um, but, uh, yeah, Taino's pretty widespread. Uh, now, expect the percentage, you know, of anyone, any given person's heritage to be kind of low. Uh, you know, maybe maxing out probably at a, at a 40%. Okay. Thank you so much, Alvin. And again, thank you so much for being on the show. You've given us a wealth of information and I know our audience is nice and full. Thank you. It's been an honor. 
Yeah, definitely appreciate you. And what I say too to that um, answer to Aja's question is that what I what I say is um, what we do and we claim our ancestry. So you know, no matter what percentage, we, we claim it all day. You know what I'm saying? So you know, I know that's something that you you know spoke spoke to as well. Oh, so. actually, I want to mention one more thing. Now, when it comes when it comes to that, um, there's actually a much stronger chance that we have. It's, it's a really weird thing. Um, when it comes to uh, Y chromosomes versus mitochondrial DNA, uh, Y chromosomes, overwhelmingly, we're talking about men from Europe and Africa. When you look at mitochondrial DNA, now it's pretty clear that the maternal lines are more often native. So it, it gets flipped uh, from fathers to mothers, who was who way back when that original mixing was going on. <laughs> yeah. so it, is, it is very interesting in that way. Um, just thinking about uh, specifically uh, paternal line versus maternal line. That makes a lot of sense, though. It goes into a lot of the narratives with the traders. You know, you have the, you know, the European traders that would come in and they would establish their relationships in that way. So in that, that sense, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think biology may have something to do with it in that uh, maybe you've heard of the concept of man flu. <laughs> you've probably lived the concept of man flu. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it's just... Uh, our immune systems are not as strong. So if some new disease is going to spread through an area, uh, it may claim the lives of a lot more men than women. And we, we probably would see, if we could go back in time, we probably would see that happening um, at the, the outset of the contacts between uh, the Americas and uh, quote unquote the old world well, I know there's a lot we could delve into like you said probably need about two three more parts but yeah um, I guess we could probably end it right there Ozzy? yeah that was something to end on so um, give our audience a, a minute to think and to hold on to that um, so again um, great show I appreciate y'all and um, we can sign off sounds good Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.